Good morning. Welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Roger Pilon. I'm the director of Cato's Center for Constitutional Studies, which is your host for today's conference. Um, I want to also welcome our C-SPAN audience uh, to this, our seventh annual Constitution Day uh, conference. This is the event uh, at which we also release the Cato Supreme Court Review, and this is the seventh volume of that review. Um, <clears throat> we take our inspiration here at the center from the vision of the Founding Fathers, in particular the idea that the Constitution was ratified to ensure individual liberty under a government of limited constitutional powers. <clears throat> Obviously, we have strayed very far from that vision over the past 200-plus years. Uh, the idea was set forth by James Madison in the Federalist 45 that the new federal government would have powers that were few and defined. Uh, obviously, if you look around Washington today, you see anything but powers that are few and defined. Accordingly, we uh, look at the work of the court because the court has been responsible for allowing much of this political power to arise and the growth of government. And so what we do each year is critique the court through the Cato Supreme Court review and through this conference with respect to whether it has or has not adhered in its decisions to the Madisonian vision. This term, uh, there were, uh, with, with few exceptions, uh, we did not have a terribly exciting term. Uh, there were fewer cases decided by the court uh, than in any time over the past half century, and a good many of those cases were not constitutional decisions, but rather statutory decisions. Nevertheless, we've plucked from its uh, term uh, some of the more interesting cases, and they're going to constitute the subjects of our three panels today, and then in the fourth panel, we're going to look ahead to the uh, term coming up, and then finally, we're going to conclude today with the seventh annual B. Kenneth Simon Lecture, which will be given by Professor Randy Barnett, who is with us uh, through the course of the day uh, from Georgetown uh, Law Center. Um, in a minute, I'm going to introduce my colleague, uh, Ilya Shapiro, who is the editor of the review. Uh, Ilya and I will be your moderators through the course of the day. Before I do, however, uh, just a couple of housekeeping uh, items. Uh, so that we can start our uh, program on time, uh, please make sure that you return uh, after the lunch break uh, so that we can begin at 1 o'clock and also after the afternoon break. And I would also urge you to turn off your cell phones or put them on vibrate so we don't have any disturbances. Um, the, um, uh, the speakers have been instructed to uh, keep their remarks to 15 minutes. We hope they do so, after which they will have an exchange between themselves, and then we're going to open it up to questions from the audience, so you'll get a chance to ask whatever questions you may have. All right, let me now turn to um, our first panel and to introduce uh, the moderator, uh, my colleague Ilya Shapiro, who is a senior fellow in constitutional studies here at Cato and is the editor-in-chief of the Cato Supreme Court Review. 
Uh, before coming to Cato, he served uh, briefly in Iraq just last summer as special assistant to uh, David Petraeus uh, for the rule of law project that was undertaken by the multinational force uh, in Iraq. Uh, he uh, was uh, a, 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 an associate at uh, Patton and Boggs uh, before that. Um, he um, is also an adjunct professor at George Washington University. Uh, he is a graduate of Princeton University, the London School of Economics, and the University of Chicago Law School, and he clerked for uh, Judge um, Jolly on the um, Fifth Circuit. Uh, please welcome Ilya Shapiro. Thanks very much, Roger. Um, as Roger said, this is the seventh Constitution Day conference when we release uh, this handy tome, the first one that, that I've edited. Um, so I, I kind of, I'm kind of biased. I, I like this one uh, more than all the preceding ones. Um, we put this together very uh, rapidly, about two months after the term ends and a couple of weeks before the next term begins. Uh, we're proud of, of this speed with which we turn around a full-scale a scholarly critique, and also of its accessibility. It's meant to be written not for law professors and academics, uh, but for uh, interested citizens and educated laymen. So I, I do hope that you see a difference in the articles than you would if you picked up the Harvard Law Review or the University of Chicago Law Review, uh, not to denigrate those fine publications, of course, just a different purpose that we serve. Um, and I re reiterate our hope that this conference and uh, the volume, the Supreme Court Review, um, helps promote the, the first principles of our Constitution and giving uh, renewed voice to the framers' wish that we have a government of law and not of men, uh, that the Constitution reflects and protects the natural rights of life, liberty, and property and serves as a bulwark against the abuse of state power. Uh, in this uncertain time after the end of our post-Cold War holiday from history, it's more important than ever that we remember our humble roots in the Enlightenment tradition. Um, just to give a brief overview of the conference, you have the schedule, so I won't go over it uh, in too much detail. We have this, this one panel that I'm about to introduce, then lunch for an hour, then a panel on uh, international law and the war on terror that I'll be appearing on, trying to get a, a word in edgewise among the uh, very high-profile scholars we have for that. Uh, then a business panel, and, and a lot of people tend to take their afternoon naps during that, and I will advise you not to. This is a tremendous business panel that we have um, uh, tackling the, uh, the highest profile, most significant cases in the area of securities, um, energy, and regulatory preemption that the court has seen in, in decades, really, uh, by, by top uh, litigators and academics in those fields. Then a brief break, and then our uh, looking ahead panel, so you can know what to expect starting the first Monday of October in a few weeks, um, with some big names there. And then, of course, uh, Randy Barnett, who I see in the audience, as Roger said, will give our keynote address. Um, so... Without further ado, I hope you enjoy this conference, and we'll proceed right along to the first panel, which is entitled The Constitution Restored. We'll be talking about some of the uh, important rights. Of course, they're all important uh, in the Bill of Rights in the Constitution. We begin with the Second Amendment and a thoroughly engaging walk through the instant classic D.C. gun case, uh, which I'm sure you're all familiar with, the District of Columbia versus Heller, and it's already generating litigation around the country, and our speaker will probably tell you about the, the latest uh, news in this realm that happened just yesterday at the D.C. Council. Uh, Clark Neely will be discussing the case. He's a... Uh, 
sorry, I was pointing here, over there. Uh, he's a co-counsel um, on, on the Heller case, along with Alan Gura and Cato's own Bob Levy. Clark is a senior attorney at the Institute for Justice, where he litigates economic liberty, property rights, school choice, First Amendment, and other constitutional cases in uh, both federal and state courts. He's currently leading IJ's opposition to a nationwide effort to cartelize the interior design industry. Uh, Clark, I'll have to talk to you about that later <laughs> as I... Uh, uh, look to uh, appoint my new apartment, um, and he's also a leader of the of IJ's school choice team. Uh, Clark received his, both his undergraduate and law degrees from the University of Texas, then clerked for Judge Royce Lamberth of the District Court for the District of Columbia. Then we will have uh, frequent Constitution Day panelist and Cato uh, amicus brief author Eric Jaffe, who's going to look at a couple of cases that dealt with the regulation of political parties and elections. Um, he, Eric is a solo appellate attorney, has his own shingle, so to speak, in, in Washington, emphasizing First Amendment and other constitutional issues. He's been involved in 24 cases at the merit stage before the Supreme Court uh, and is a former chairman of the Federal Society's Free Speech and Election Law Practice Group. Eric is a graduate of Dartmouth College and Columbia Law School and clerked for Judge uh, Douglas Ginsburg on the uh, D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals and for Justice Clarence Thomas. Uh, and then Luke Milligan, who has graciously agreed to step in for Edward Loya, who provided our loan contribution in criminal law in the volumes that you'll find. Um, Loya argued in his piece through two cases, Danforth versus Minnesota and Virginia v. Moore, that the Roberts Court increasingly stands for judicial supremacy for good and ill. Um, and Milligan, I'm sure, will uh, follow up on that theme. And in a nod to the importance of new media, uh, the reason why we got a hold of him, uh, purely coincidentally, I knew him from my clerking days. He had also clerked on the Fifth Circuit for Judge uh, Edith Brown Clement. Uh, but we were looking for someone to, to uh, replace uh, Edward Loya and came across a blog post that uh, Luke had put on his faculty website um, precisely on this case. It was very interesting, and I hope he speaks more about that. Um, Luke is an associate professor of law at the Lewis Brandeis School of Law at the University of Louisville, where he teaches and writes on criminal law, constitutional law, and jurisprudence. He graduated from Emory Law School, uh, and besides clerking for Judge Clement, also clerked for Judge uh, Martin Feldman of the District Court for the Eastern District of Louisiana. So, let's begin with uh, Clark Neely and the Heller case. Thanks, Ilya. I want to thank Ilya and Roger, everybody at the Cato Institute, for having us today. It's uh, exciting to uh, be here on Constitution Day to talk about, uh, I think, in some ways, uh, one of the most interesting and, and hopefully important constitutional law decisions, uh, certainly of this term and perhaps uh, for a generation in the Supreme Court. The Second Amendment provides that a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. For more than 200 years, the Second Amendment was essentially a kind of a constitutional Loch Ness monster. Despite re occasional reported sightings, most people and certainly most judges and academics were inclined to believe that it didn't really exist, and it was treated that way. Uh, so what happened to cause the Heller case to be filed, and why did it turn out the way that it did? Well, the decision to file what became the Heller case uh, originated, or the idea originated, with uh, myself and an Institute for Justice colleague of mine, Steve Simpson. And the sort of precipitating event for that was a Fifth Circuit decision in 2001 uh, called the Emerson case. In Emerson, the Fifth Circuit became the first federal court of appeals 
ever to interpret the Second Amendment as protecting an individual right to keep and bear arms. Now, under the particular facts of that case, it didn't end up striking down any law, and in fact, it found that the individual asserting the Second Amendment claim did not have his rights violated. And there's some dispute about whether the Emerson decision was, was dicta or not, but it had two very important and profound effects. The first was that it prompted the Department of Justice to change its historical interpretation of the Second Amendment and to actually file a brief in the U.S. Supreme Court taking the position on behalf of the United States that the Second Amendment does protect an individual right to keep and bear arms. The other effect of the Emerson case, which was uh, in some ways even more significant for the decision to file Heller, is that criminal defense attorneys all over the country began asserting Second Amendment defenses to gun charges in cases where they would not otherwise have done so. And what this essentially produced was a kind of a foot race to the U.S. Supreme Court, at least from the perspective that we had. Uh, as public interest lawyers, we're very aware of the fact that how a case is presented to a court can often, uh, well, it, it may or may not determine the outcome, but it certainly shades the odds in your favor or against you, depending on whether the case is presented in a sympathetic way. And so Steve and I had a very strong conviction that if the Second Amendment was going to get to the Supreme Court soon, which we thought it was, that it should get there on behalf of some hand-picked civil rights plaintiffs and not on behalf of some accused defendant who may have just you know, carjacked somebody or shot up a McDonald's. This would be a very bad posture for the Second Amendment to be considered by the courts. And uh, a much better decision would be to try to get the case up to the Supreme Court on behalf of, of uh, civil rights plaintiffs. So we approached uh, my former co-clerk and friend Bob Levy here at the Cato Institute, who immediately agreed to support the case. Uh, and we spent the summer of 2002 essentially looking for and ultimately recruiting uh, clients to be plaintiffs in a Second Amendment challenge to D.C.'s gun law. Why the District of Columbia? Well, there were two reasons for that. First, because uh, D.C. had the nation's most draconian gun laws, not just at present, but ever. The only time, there have only been two times in American history where we've seen a more sweeping imposition on the right to own guns. The first was when the British disarmed the colonists at Boston during revolutionary times, and the second was during slavery when blacks were forbidden from owning guns. There has never been a more sweeping, more comprehensive disarmament of American citizens on American soil uh, than in the District of Columbia when they passed the gun ban in 1976. The second reason was because the D.C. Circuit was one of the only federal court of appeals that had not yet weighed in on the Second Amendment. And so in here in D.C., at least as a, a matter of federal interpretation, it was an open question. Uh, the local court of appeals, the D.C. Uh, uh, court of appeals, had in fact interpreted the Second Amendment to protect only a collective and not an individual right, uh, but that was not binding on the D.C. Circuit. Um, <clears throat> basically, what you had at the time were two competing visions, two competing interpretations of the Second Amendment. One was a standard individual rights interpretation akin to pretty much the rest of the Bill of Rights, free speech, religion, so forth and so on. Uh, and the other vision of the Second Amendment was, was what's been called variously a collective rights interpretation, sophisticated collective rights, states' rights, militia-centric. The name keeps changing as the theory evolves, but it always means the same thing, namely that the Second Amendment doesn't really mean anything. And this was the, basically the, the competing visions of the Second Amendment uh, that existed when the Heller case was filed in February of 2003. The other thing that was so important about the timing for Heller and what made it a viable constitutional challenge at the time was the academic scholarship <clears throat> that provided not only the foundation 
for the Emerson decision, uh, but also essentially made the Second Amendment a respectable issue in constitutional law, which it really had not been before, I would say, the uh, early to mid-1980s. There was a resurgence of interest in the Second Amendment starting in 1983 with the publication of an article by Don Cates in the Michigan Law Review, and it really went on from there. And what you saw was a, a very profound switch in academic scholarship from an almost complete and unanimous embrace of collective rights interpretations uh, to a a really 180-degree turnabout to the point where actually the individual rights model came to be known as the standard model for the interpretation of the Second Amendment by the 1990s. I only have a limited amount of time. I'd love to tell you more about the the, uh, court proceedings. They were... um, amazing in some ways. There were some very strange uh, bounces that the ball took along the way, including the D.C. Circuit finding that five of our six plaintiffs did not have standing to uh, be in the case because they had not gone down to the uh, police department and filled out a meaningless form to apply to register their pistols. Um, I could probably spend my whole 15 minutes telling you what I think about that decision, but I won't. One of the most interesting interesting things, I think, when we got to the Supreme Court was the extraordinary outpouring of scholarship in the form of amicus briefs. There were 68 amicus briefs filed in this case. I'm told by uh, Ilya that that's a record. The only case that got more was uh, the Grutter and Gratz cases, but they were two consolidated cases, so they each garnered fewer than 68 apiece. So you had a tremendous number of amicus briefs, and they were of exceptionally high quality, with some exceptions. Uh, Briefs on both sides of this case were of exceptionally uh, high quality, and I I wish I had enough time to really give all of them their due because there are some people in this room um, who either filed those briefs or, or worked on them, and they certainly deserve to be recognized. But I'd like to single out one brief to mention, and not in a good way, Uh, This was the brief, probably most of you know what's coming, filed by the Solicitor General of the United States. And um, it was was a a terrible brief. It was a terrible, terrible disappointment. Um, It was a terrible brief, I think, unfortunately, as a matter of the quality, but also as a matter of the point that it made. It was incredibly disrespectful um, to the Second Amendment, and here's why. It purported to interpret the Second Amendment as an individual right, but then it went on to say uh, that essentially it, it had to be subjected to a kind of a reasonableness analysis. And for anyone who's ever done constitutional law, at least for me, I've been doing it for eight and a half years, the word reasonableness immediately makes me very, very concerned. Why? Because essentially what you're telling a judge is you should only overrule this law if you think all those people who passed it were behaving unreasonably. And what is that but judicial activism? You're essentially telling a judge you should only overturn this law if you're prepared to be an activist and tell the entire D.C. Council that it was behaving unreasonably when it passed this law. And yet, that's precisely the standard that the Solicitor General advocated. And to get a sense of kind of how foregone a conclusion it is when you apply the standard that the Solicitor General proposed, they actually argued that the case should be remanded to the lower courts to consider whether the most sweeping imposition on gun rights ever in this country apart from when the British disarmed the colonists and slavery, was reasonable. They actually thought that D.C.'s gun ban might be reasonable and that this needed to be litigated for another couple of years. Um, And so I think that the the Solicitor General's brief was a tremendous disappointment for people who took the Bush administration at its word that it cared about uh, the Second Amendment. But it illustrated an important point. There is a world of difference between saying that you care about a particular right and meaning it. When the time came to put up or shut up, unfortunately the Bush administration blinked 
and submitted a brief that did not follow through and did not go to bat for the Second Amendment. Um, I should add that one of the other speakers today, uh, Brad Berenson, did an absolutely amazing job on uh, a brief that was essentially designed to refute uh, the, the Solicitor General's brief uh, submitted on behalf of the Goldwater Institute in Arizona. It's a really, really fun read, and I encourage uh, anyone who wants to to read it. You can get all of the materials for these uh, for this case, by the way, on a, uh, a website that we maintain called dcguncase.com. We have a page that, that contains all of the case filings. Uh, okay, so the, the, as everybody in the room knows, I assume, the Heller case produced a 5-4 to four decision in which the majority of the Supreme Court interpreted the Second Amendment as protecting an individual right. Uh, essentially what it was, and there, there were three opinions. Justice Scalia wrote the majority opinion for five justices, uh, and then Justice Stevens uh, and Justice Breyer each wrote dissenting opinions in which all of the dissenting justices joined. In other words, all four dissenting justices joined both dissenting opinions. I would say that most of the action in the Heller decisions uh, comes down to a kind of an originalist duel between Justice Scalia and Justice Stevens. They go over the text and the history of the Second Amendment, reach opposite conclusions about its meaning, um, but it sort of takes you on a, a really wonderful and I think fascinating tour uh, through history, not only the history of the drafting of the Second Amendment, but even the history that preceded that in terms of the, um, uh, the English Bill of Rights, common law, and what was essentially the intellectual underpinnings for the Second Amendment. Um, I won't go through the decisions in a tremendous amount of detail, but I will say this. There have been a lot of criticisms of, the, of Justice Scalia's decision. Some people uh, who are very fervent gun rights advocates say that he essentially threw portions of the Second Amendment under the bus. Uh, there were very strong implications in the decision, for example, that machine guns would not be constitutionally protected. He did come out and say, although it's dicta, uh, that, for example, felon in possession laws would be upheld. Dangerous and unusual weapons could be outlawed. Um, my position is that probably none of that was ever really on the table. I think it's very difficult to imagine that a court that ruled five to four that the most sweeping gun ban in American history was unconstitutional was likely or was on the verge of protecting machine guns and rocket launchers. I just don't think that was in the cards. And so I think Justice Scalia's decision is really about the best that could have been expected by people who interpret the Second Amendment as protecting an individual right. And I think he did a really, really nice job of supporting that point. He did a very thorough exegesis, both of the text and the history of the Second Amendment, and I think came up with a very compelling argument for why it protects an individual right. I think that the Stevens decision is seriously inadequate in many different ways, and I'm just going to talk about uh, a couple of those right now. The first and maybe the most profound um, is that Justice Stevens never really adequately grapples with the following issue. The rights protected by the Bill of Rights were not created by the Bill of Rights. They predated the Bill of Rights. So, for example, I mentioned this in the article. There's a pretty well-known thought experiment where you go back in time to 1790. So it's after the, the adoption of the Constitution, but it's before the ratification of the Bill of Rights. Could it really be the case that Americans had no right of free speech, no right of free press or religion, just because those things hadn't been written down yet? And the answer is obviously no. Those were the, the rights that were specifically mentioned by uh, Thomas Jefferson. Those are the unalienable rights mentioned in the Declaration of Independence, and they predated the adoption both of the Constitution and of the Bill of Rights. And the Second Amendment, the right to keep and bear arms, was emphatically one of those. So this is a right that predated 
the adoption of the Bill of Rights. And I think it's ludicrous to suggest that the Second Amendment was intended to constrain that natural right to keep and bear arms, to limit it or to shrink it in some way. And so what you really need to come to grips with, which I think Justice Stevens never does, is what was the content of the natural right to bear arms, the one that predated the adoption of the Second Amendment with its arguably ambiguous language about the militia. And he never really does that. And I think that's the single most glaring problem with his decision and renders it unpersuasive. The other thing that I think renders Justice Stevens' decision unpersuasive is that he never tries to grapple with the significance of his interpretation of the Second Amendment. Early on in the decision, he says that it protects a right to use weapons in certain military settings. What in the world does that mean? So you get drafted into the Army and they tell you to assault a machine gun nest, but they won't give you a gun. You get to go to federal court for an injunction and say, no, I would really like to have a gun for this mission, and the Second Amendment says I get one. Um, And there's been a lot written about this problem, so it's not as if it was hiding in the shadows. It's right out there in the open. And I think Justice Stevens and the other dissenting justices' failure to come to grips uh, with this basic problem that their interpretation of the Second Amendment is essentially meaningless or that it produces absurd results like that states, for example, should have a right to have F-16s and tanks to serve as a counterbalance to to the federal standing army. Their failure to grasp or even to address these issues uh, further uh, undermines their opinion. I'm not going to say much about Justice Breyer's dissent. Essentially what he does is he says, I totally agree with Justice Stevens, but even if he's wrong, the Second Amendment should be subject to this balancing test that I'm just going to invent on the spot. It's a proportionality thing, and since I don't really need a gun to defend myself at home, nobody needs a gun to defend themselves at home. Uh, And that's a bit of a caricature, but not much. Read the decision and see if you disagree. Uh, Again, he reaches the same result that the Solicitor General would have, or he does it overtly and says, Second Amendment, once I subject my balancing test to it, um, I think that what D.C. did here by disarming all of the people in the entire District of Columbia was reasonable, and I would let that stand. I'll close by saying this. No matter how you feel about the Second Amendment, It doesn't matter whether you like the right to keep and bear arms. There's probably some constitutional right somewhere that you do care about. And if five justices were willing to engage in the kind of reasoning that the dissenting justices did in Heller when it came to your right that you care about, that right would be gone. Absolutely. So Heller, I think, serves uh, to underscore the importance of respecting rights in this country, even the ones that we don't personally care about. And I think that respecting rights is important to the body politic, and Heller was a wonderful, wonderful dose. Thank you. I should mention that uh, Cato has a book coming out in November called Gun Control on Trial by Brian Doherty, a senior editor at Reason, that's going to detail this whole path of of this case and features Clark, and I saw Alan Gura walked in uh, prominently, as well as Bob Levy and all the other protagonists in the case. So I I don't know whether uh, you can talk to the people outside, but whether you can order an advanced copy or or, or what, but uh, that's coming. Eric. Thank you, Ilya. Thank you, uh, Cato, for having me back again and again. Uh, I always enjoy This is probably my favorite event of the year. I always like talking here and usually say something inappropriate. So I'll try to not disappoint. Um, <clears throat> I'm talking about the First Amendment today, though I'm going to try to generally limit myself to the two cases I wrote about, which, are, uh, which were New York State Board of, Edu- Board of Elections versus Lopez Torres and Washington State Grange versus Washington Republican Party. Time allowing, I may briefly mention uh, the other, the one and a half other sort of free speech cases, uh, Davis versus FEC, which is on the Millionaire's Amendment, 
and uh, Chamber of Commerce versus Brown, I think it was, which uh, was really a labor case but sort of dealt with First Amendment themes and given that so many labor cases end up being sort of signposts for real First Amendment cases, uh, I count it as a half. Anyway, getting back to the two that I actually wrote about and have thought about in in greater depth, uh, New York State Board of uh, Elections versus Lopez Torres uh, involved a challenge to New York's law setting the procedures for electing certain judges. The particular judges are neither here nor there. The procedure was basically a hybrid convention procedure. So they required the political parties, any major political party, to elect delegates who would then go to a party convention and the delegates would then select the nominee to run in that party's slot for, for a state Supreme Court justice, which in New York means the trial judge, uh, weirdly enough. Um, Lopez Torres was a judge who wanted to run for this particular judgeship and did not get the endorsement of her party for a variety of reasons, none of which seemed very good, mostly because she was unwilling to be a, a craven crony uh, to the party, and so the party sort of basically disowned her because she wouldn't hire somebody's nephew or something preposterously foolish like that. Um, and so the party disowned her, backed some other nominee, and she was annoyed, and so she challenged this law saying, look, uh, this election procedure gives too much weight to the party bosses. Even though she had lots of popular support, she had basically no chance of being the party nominee, and in New York, uh, pretty much, depending on which judicial district you're in, either the Democrats or the Republicans, pretty much have the district locked down. So the nominating conventions, for all practical purposes, tell you who your judge is going to be. Because in New York City, unless you're a Dem, you lose. In upstate, unless you're a Republican, you lose. There is no competitive general election for all practical purposes. So she said, look, if I can't have decent access to try and become the nominee, I basically have no shot at at election. And so what she and a number of other folks sought was an order mandating a direct primary. Take it away from the party bosses, put it straight to the people, let the people decide within the party who should be that party's nominee. And she got it. Miraculously, she got it. Um, And so the district court and the Second Circuit affirming uh, mandated a direct primary until New York State could get its act together to find something better. Uh, Got up to the Supreme Court and, in my opinion, quite obviously lost and should have lost because nobody has the right to be nominated by a political party. They're political parties. They're generally private entities. And if the party doesn't like you, they don't have to nominate you. And no one said a party has to be democratic in terms of its internal operations. No one said parties can only make decisions by opening it up to a referenda of its members. That's uh, an odd notion for if you accept the predicate that a party is a private association, uh, expressive association designed for political speech. Well, then their internal governance structure really is none of anyone's business but the parties. So the party says, I'd rather have my party bosses make a choice, and they don't like you, so too bad. That's fine. And if the membership of the party doesn't like the way the party bosses do their job, well, the membership can elect new party bosses, or it can leave, which is the real answer. Quit the party. If your party is corrupt, which I think it's fair to say New York political parties seem to be, uh, then leave. Get out of the party. Uh, That's your First Amendment right to not associate with people you don't like uh, and who you think are corrupt. Uh, But Lopez Torres, uh, citing some older cases that sort of dealt with ballot access, 
said, look, I, I deserve a fair shot at getting the nomination. Even if I don't deserve to win, I deserve a fair shot. The court said, no, that's ridiculous. You don't deserve a fair shot. You deserve the right to try. Uh, but if you get crushed in trying, that's too bad. And I think that's right. I think that's the right answer uh, with a qualifier that I will mention later. Um, but in any event, Justice Scalia wrote a fairly straightforward opinion pointing out that the First Amendment doesn't mean you get to win. It only means you get to try. And you lost because the relevant decision makers didn't agree with you. Works for me. Works for Justice Scalia. I thought that was about the right answer. The one qualifier, which I'll just preview, is this would have been perfect if the state hadn't mandated a party convention. If the parties had just said, we decide to choose party conventions as the way we're going to pick our nominees, I would have been 100% behind this decision. The fact of the matter is New York State forced them to use party conventions. And even though the parties were happy to do so, because once again, the party elite like it, and so of course they supported it, um, they didn't have to take the political heat. And I'll come back to that theme in a minute. Moving on to the second case, Washington State Grange versus, Grange versus Washington State Republican Party. This case dealt with an unusual election procedure, which I will call a nonpartisan blanket primary. So in the usual primaries, what you have is you have partisan primaries. The Democrats nominate their candidate through a primary of some sort or through a convention. The Republicans nominate their candidate. Those two candidates get on the ballot. Uh, a few other parties may be big enough to do the same thing, and then anybody else has to come on as an independent, basically, or by petition. You get enough people to sign uh, your petition, you get on the ballot. Uh, that's the usual partisan primary. In a nonpartisan primary, pretty much anyone can get on, the, on a single primary ballot. You get enough signatures, you're on the primary. There can be five Republicans, six Republicans, seven Democrats, a couple Libertarians, a handful of Independents. They're all on the same ballot. Everyone gets to vote for whoever they want. You're not limited to voting for your party's candidate. And the top two vote-getters move on to the general election, and then you basically have a runoff. Perfectly sensible means of electing, uh, uh, of winnowing the field prior to a general election. I actually think it's the better means of doing so than a partisan primary. Uh, the one quirk about Washington State's version of this was that they required any candidate to state a party preference or a preference to be an independent. So on the application, you say, I prefer the Democrats. I prefer the Republicans. I prefer independent. Uh, and that's what you got to put. And then that followed you onto the ballot and onto the general. And in fact, you had to use that identification in your campaign literature but they just forced you to sort of declare what your preference was or declare that you didn't have a preference. Uh, the weird thing about this, of course, is that you didn't actually have to be a Republican to say, I prefer Republicans. And you didn't have to be a Democrat to say, I prefer Democrats. Uh, it was sort of strange that you got to free ride on party labels without the party's consent, without the party saying, yeah, that's my candidate. Uh, and indeed, without even being a member of the party. Uh, so the Republican Party and eventually the Democratic Party and the Libertarian Party all challenged this and said, this is forced association. They're forcing me to associate with these people by printing up their preferences on these ballots and not giving us a chance to say, whoa, 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 we don't like that guy, and he's not our candidate. Uh, they won uh, in the Ninth Circuit, which I thought was a, probably the right answer, uh, and they lost in the Supreme Court. And the reason they lost in the Supreme Court was on, mostly on a technicality which was this law had actually never gone into effect. 
It got challenged instantly. It never was uh, put into operation. So no one had actually ever seen how it worked. No one had ever seen the ballots. No one had ever seen the debates. No one had ever sort of asked the real-world question of, so are voters really confused? Do they really think this is the Republican candidate? Do they really think that's the Democratic candidate? They were never asked. And so Justice Thomas basically wrote an opinion that said, look, this is a facial challenge to the statute. It's too soon to tell. So no, I'm not going to knock down a statute that we don't even know how it works. Not a bad decision. Pretty conservative. It's sort of the hallmark of this judicial minimalism that I think the Roberts Court may be trying to bring back, which is take small steps, take small bites, don't go further than you need to. And that certainly fits that bill. Uh, Justice Scalia wrote a dissent. And for everyone who thinks Thomas and Scalia are uh, peas in a pod, this is a, one of the gazillion examples of why that's just a, a, a vicious nasty, obnoxious uh, slur on Justice Thomas. Uh, Even though I agree with Justice Scalia's dissent more than Justice Thomas, obviously they think for themselves, I I prefer Justice Scalia's version. His version was, look, I don't need to see how the ballot works. This is theoretically a nonpartisan primary. We're not nominating candidates. So why in the world are you putting party affiliation or party preference on the ballot? And the answer is because you're trying to get them to free ride on the parties. So obviously it's a forced association at some level. And the fact that the parties don't get to respond in an equal manner, i.e. the parties don't get to say on the ballot, by the way, my real preference is this guy, means the parties are sort of being put at a disadvantage, a speech disadvantage. He found that discrimination to be unjustified by any interest whatsoever. The state couldn't even really make up a good interest. They tried. They said, oh, it's just minimal information. The public wants to know. Well, but the public wants to know because they trust the parties. So given that they trust the parties and they're letting these people who aren't members of the parties free ride, the fact that you don't let the parties answer makes that interest a little bit suspect. The real interest, by the way, the -the behind-the-scenes story, is that Washington for years had tried to sort of crush the influence of the partisan wings of each party and make parties more centrist. And this was how they were going to do it, by letting anybody claim the party label, thus making the party label functionally meaningless. Uh, And that was what was really going on, but it was sort of hard to disentangle that. Anyway, at the end of the day, uh, it's going to go back for another round of... um, another round of litigation, and hopefully at the end of the day, what will happen is they'll realize, yes, this is confusing to voters. Yes, this is trying to free ride on party labels, and consequently it'll get struck down per Justice Scalia's dissenting views. Right now, it's just a matter of timing. Do we do it on, the, on its face or in an as-applied challenge? Now, what do I see in common between these two cases that seemingly have nothing to do with each other? Well, what I see in common is that they sort of deal with the role of political parties in elections. And and I see a dual role for political parties. Parties do two things. In the classic sense, political parties are nothing more than private expressive associations. A bunch of people get together and associate to further their political views, to speak out about their political views, to say, I like candidate X or I like candidate Y, to organize and gather petition signatures and advocate for candidates. That's a classic expressive activity which I think is at the heart of what political parties really are. And, in fact, at the heart of any expressive association at some level. Uh, the ACLU does, does that to some degree. The Sierra Club does that. Uh, Cato does that. Uh, not about candidates so much, but they're a private expressive association that speaks out on issues of public interest to them. These are classic First Amendment activities. Um, the other role that political parties have been forced into by the states is that of gatekeeper for ballot access. So uh, what we've done over the years is we've given 
the candidates, the nominees of a particular political party, automatic access to the final election ballot, the general election ballot. And it's this function telling the parties, look, you have lots of members, that's great, so we know you have a lot of support, pick one, and we'll put that one on the ballot. But only one and only one, and we'll put that one on the ballot. That is really a state function, regulating ballot access, deciding who gets on, who gets off, what the criteria for getting on and getting off the ballot is a state function. And by combining those two in political parties, the expressive activities and the ballot access restrictions, by having the parties do both, you get this false notion that parties are somehow state actors. And that's why you get to have cases like Lopez Torres, which say the First Amendment stops a political party from choosing its nominee the way it wants to. Now, once again, in Lopez Torres, the party wasn't really doing it the way it wanted to. The party was doing it the way the state wanted it to, and then just saying, yeah, we sort of like that, so we're not going to object. Uh, and that's a problem. Uh, the reason that's a problem, by the way, is because by letting the state come in and basically dictate internal party procedures, even though you happen to like them, you avoid the political consequences of your choices. So if a political party said, we're going to let the party boss choose, that's going to be our method of nominating a candidate. Well, that would piss off the party uh, rank and file. And they'd say, wait a minute, how about us? And then they'd have a fight about that within the party, and there'd be a governance fight, or people would just leave. But once the state says you have to use a convention, the party gets to say, well, we don't really have a choice. The state told us we had to do it this way. Don't blame us. Stay with the party. This is the state's fault. And they avoid the political consequences. So what I think the real right that should have been litigated in Lopez Torres was the right of the rank and file to have influence over party procedures, not the right to win nomination, but the right to have the fight about what procedures to be used and the right to complain when the party chooses a bad procedure. How could we have solved this problem? Well, we could have solved this problem by the, the system in Washington state, minus the party preference business. A nonpartisan blanket primary says... The primary, the state-run primary, is not about picking a party nominee. It's about winnowing the candidates and having ballot access be to the two with the most support. And parties can nominate whoever they want. It doesn't mean anything. It means that you support them, you get to talk about it, you get to speak about it, but it doesn't get them on the ballot. It doesn't do anything other than express your political view that this is the best candidate. And then voters can take that view for what it's worth. If they agree with the party, they use it. If they don't, they won't. But at the end of the day, the best way to solve this would be to just split these roles, put the parties back to expressive associations that do nothing but talk, and let the state worry about ballot access. Thank you. Thank you, Eric. Now we'll hear from Luke Milligan on the Fourth Amendment. Thank you to Ilya uh, and Roger and the Cato Institute for having me. Uh, this morning I'm going to discuss the implications of the Supreme Court's recent decision in Virginia v. Moore. Why in the world, you might be asking yourself, are we spending time today discussing and thinking about Virginia v. Moore? After all, uh, it was the court's uh, review of a relatively narrow doctrinal issue in the Fourth Amendment context. The issue was resolved 9-0 to zero by the court, and uh, it received virtually uh, no attention from the general public or the media. Well, the answer to the question, why do we care about more, I think, is twofold. First, it offers us a clear, uh, if slight, opening into the court's understanding of federalism, and in particular, uh, its sense of judicial interpretive primacy. Second, 
uh, I think more is interesting because the justices made a conscientious effort to formulate a decision to encourage the state and local governments to protect criminal procedure rights. Let me just back up and take a few moments to frame the specific legal issue that was before the court in Virginia v. Moore. It's been long understood that a search is unreasonable pursuant to the Fourth Amendment if it is conducted uh, without a valid warrant. Now, that said, this general warrant rule is, of course, riddled with exceptions. And one of the most common uh, exception is that pertaining to uh, the search of an arrestee following a lawful arrest. This exception is appropriately called the search incident to arrest doctrine, and it is the function of a pretty straightforward calculus. The state's interest in uh, protecting the officers and in preventing the destruction of evidence sufficiently outweighs the diminished privacy rights of the arrestee. So this brings us to David Moore, the respondent in this case. David Moore was pulled over uh, in his car by local police in Virginia. He was uh, promptly arrested for driving uh, with a suspended license. Uh, pursuant to that arrest for driving with a suspended license, officers searched his person and his car and subsequently seized 16 grams of crack cocaine. He was then, of course, charged with various drug-related offenses. Now, the catch in Moore's case is uh, that Virginia law expressly prohibited his arrest. Driving on a suspended license, uh, like many other misdemeanors, is not an arrestable offense under Virginia law. So Moore, of course, moves to uh, suppress the evidence on the ground that the, the, the arrest was not lawful pursuant to state law. Therefore, the government should not be entitled to the warrant exception for searches incident to arrests. Therefore, the evidence should be suppressed as the fruits of an unreasonable search. Now, the Virginia Supreme Court ultimately sided uh, with Moore, and the Supreme, U.S. Supreme Court granted cert. The specific question before the U.S. Supreme Court, I think, can be framed as follows. Is a lawful arrest, pursuant to the search incident doctrine, one that is merely constitutional or one that is, on the other hand, constitutional and consistent with positive law? It's not surprising that in our federalist system, the two are not always one and the same. Uh, for example, an arrest for a very minor offense is constitutional. This is the Atwater case from 2001, uh, the famed arrest of the soccer mom who was driving uh, without a seatbelt. Atwater aside, states are, of course, free to pass laws curtailing arrest powers beyond the rules imposed by the Fourth Amendment. Such extra-constitutional limitations uh, oftentimes prohibit arrests for certain classes of offenses, very minor uh, offenses or violations, and oftentimes direct officers to follow particular guidelines when they actually conduct the arrest. Thus, it's not hard to see how an arrest can fall within what I call this extra-constitutional space. That is, it's constitutional, but yet at the same time violative of state law. So last April, the court hands down its opinion in Moore and unanimously reverses the Virginia High, uh, High Court. Sc Justice Scalia, uh, writing for the court, concludes that a warrantless search is constitutional 
so long as it is incident to a constitutional arrest. And it matters not whether that arrest violated state law. So this result was really not uh, unexpected. I mean, even the more liberal justices on the court appeared skeptical of Moore's argument uh, uh, during oral argument. Justice Souter at one point asked, uh, you know, seemingly rhetorically, uh, if the Fourth Amendment says it's okay to arrest, then why shouldn't the Fourth Amendment say it's okay to protect himself? The writing was probably on the wall at, at that point. Um, the result in Moore was not only expected, but it was good. And it was good in terms of principle, and it was good in terms of its uh, policy consequences. And I'll uh, take each of these uh, in turn. First, the Moore decision rests on the sound principle uh, that the Supreme Court is the final arbiter of federal constitutional rights. This is sometimes referred to as judicial interpretive primacy. The principle is rooted in Marbury versus Madison, uh, which had explained that the constitutional framers vested in one Supreme Court the authority and responsibility to interpret the Constitution. The corollary of this principle is uh, that the states and Congress have uh, uh, very little discretion in defining the contours of federal constitutional rights. Now, historically speaking, this principle of judicial interpretive primacy has uh, manifested in cases where the states or where Congress have narrowed federal constitutional rights. But David Moore wasn't arguing uh, that Virginia should have the uh, discretion to narrow the Fourth Amendment. Moore was arguing that Virginia should have the discretion to expand the Fourth Amendment. The court, of course, was not moved by this distinction and concluded that any manipulation of federal constitutional rights, be it a contraction or an expansion, uh, would be unwelcomed. There are several reasons why uh, this principle of interpretive primacy should run both ways, why it should uh, apply in cases of contraction and expansion of federal constitutional rights. Um, the first reason, um, and it wasn't really discussed by the court, but uh, it seems that if states were free to expand federal constitutional rights, the real sources of law would be obscured over time. And this, in a theoretical sense, makes it more difficult for the governed to hold the government accountable. Uh, I see this roughly akin to the jurisprudential critique of the early positivists. Jeremy Bentham and John Austin famously advocated the separation of law and morality. They believed that such separation would sharply expose uh, the true sources of law and thus facilitate uh, uh, legislative reform projects. Um, it seems that, at least in theory, allowing the states to shroud their decisions in federal constitutional rights raises some of these same concerns. In addition to obscuring the sources of law, uh, allowing states to expand federal rights means that such rights will become balkanized, that they will vary from jurisdiction to jurisdiction and from time to time. And this was addressed by the court. Um, why do we care about uniformity with our federal constitutional rights? Well, one reason, of course, is fairness. I mean, you've got David Moore driving in the state of Virginia. Presume his twin brother is driving in the state of Washington. Both are stopped and arrested for driving on a suspended license. Both are searched incident to that arrest, and contraband is seized from both of their persons. 
the Fourth Amendment is only going to step in and actually protect David Moore's brother in Washington due to the nuances or the intricacies of Washington state law. Now, does this uneven application of federal constitutional rights uh, seem consistent with the vision of the framers? Does it seem consistent with the vision of the drafters of the 14th Amendment? Is it consistent with the justices, the vision of the justices uh, who incorporated the Fourth Amendment to the states? Supreme Court here and more holds that it is inconsistent with those visions. Another reason we value uniformity in our federal constitutional rights is for the sake of efficiencies, and this is of particular importance in the Fourth Amendment context. Uh, One might think of the federal agent who, prior to conducting a search, uh, feels compelled to conduct due diligence on uh, the intricacies of state arrest law. So in the end, I think Moore uh, is uh, notable for its reasoning. It strongly reaffirms that judicial interpretive primacy governs both contractions and expansions of federal constitutional rights. But the Moore decision, I think, is also notable for its consequences. Uh, And Ilya uh, referred to this during the introductory remarks. Moore creates what I refer to as a tax-free zone for the creation of search and seizure laws at the state and local level. Let me explain this point just briefly. Um, The Fourth Amendment, of course, provides an absolute floor on search and seizure rights, and all commentators, no matter their judicial philosophy, envision that states will sometimes go beyond the limits imposed uh, by the Constitution or by the Fourth Amendment. My uh, thought here is that such extra-constitutional regulations are more likely to be enacted, all things being equal, by legislatures with unfettered authority to select remedies. Now, the menu of remedies, right, you've got your traditional, you've got your exclusion of evidence, you've got civil liability for the, viol- for the officer violating the rights, you've got administrative sanctions, and in some contexts you have no remedy at all. If the court my argument is, had pegged the search incident doctrine to state law rather than constitutional law, the Fourth Amendment, which is generally tied to exclusion, would effectively impose an exclusion tax on those well-meaning legislatures that opt to go beyond federal constitutional rights. Just to illustrate, one can envision a block of legislators who seek to curtail arrest powers uh, within their state these legislators are willing to create the remedy of civil liability or administrative sanctions, but they're not willing to go all the way to create an exclusion remedy. Under these circumstances, the state government would be willing to produce these extra uh, uh, restrictions on arrest powers at natural costs, but they'd be unwilling to do so when saddled uh, with a constitutionally imposed exclusion tax. This uh, exclusion or nothing approach uh, proposed by the respondent and more, uh, if adopted, I think would have likely resulted uh, in weaker regulation of law enforcement. And in a more theoretical context, I think it would have led to an undue obstruction of the natural development of search and seizure law. Uh, Thankfully, the court decided otherwise and concluded wisely that the Fourth Amendment does not impose an exclusion tax on state legislatures. So in sum, uh, the Moore decision is by no means groundbreaking. 
But I do think uh, it is notable in that it reminds us that the court sees itself as the final interpreter of federal constitutional rights. And I think more is also uh, important as it reflects sort of a kinder, gentler type of federalism, uh, one that not only narrows federal rights vis-a-vis the states, but one that at least seems interested in facilitating state protection of criminal procedure rights. Thank you. Thank you for that, Luke. Now, we have a a few minutes um, of discussion up here, but because the the cases are all so disparate, rather than having a free-for-all, I'd like to kind of focus the panelists on try to come up with a unifying theme. Um, And I would ask them to think about this question. Can our rights, whether enumerated in the Bill of Rights, like the first, second, and fourth, uh, as respectively discussed, or um, those that are unenumerated, mean different things in different states? Um, and if they do, and there's been some indication that you know, we can have different gun regulations in different states or um, certain times we can be arrested or not uh, for the same actions in different states, although that has different consequences on uh, the fruits of, of searches incident to those, arrested, uh, to those arrests, um, if we do have these different rights in different states, is this a good thing under our first principles and how the, the Constitution should be structured? Clark, do you want to lead off on that? I really don't. Um, no, I, I'm still thinking that through. I think it's sort of, well, with respect to the Second Amendment. I mean, well, you know, look, uh, most states. Um, you know, Bob, might correct me from how many states don't have a, a keep and bear arms provision in their state? Yeah. So 44 states have some kind of state constitutional um, provision about the right to keep and bear arms, and I think it's perfectly reasonable to uh, that those be enforced in parallel fashion with the federal Second Amendment, and for the Supreme Court to establish essentially a baseline. Uh, and that st- states, uh, if they want to extend that baseline, have to do so on the basis of what's written in their state constitution. I don't see that as presenting a significant problem for the Second Amendment. And, you know, I think Luke makes some really interesting points about the, the, the possible danger of allowing states um, on a piecemeal basis to extend federal constitutional protections. And I'd have to think through it more uh, to address that intelligently. But as far as the Second Amendment, I, I don't have any problem with the idea of the Supreme Court establishing a baseline and states extending that baseline only on the basis of state constitutional provisions if they choose to do so. Eric? Well, I mean, it strikes me that characterizing this as having states extend federal constitutional rights may be the wrong starting point. Certain constitutional rights may well be contingent. So due process, for example. In order to comply with due process, one would imagine step one is follow the written rules, whatever they may be. Ignoring any written rules could be a violation of due process. Uh, The alternative is to say due process merely means the absolute minimum that you need to follow, and we don't care if you ignore every other rule in the book as long as you follow the minimum that we set forth. Those are two competing visions of what that constitutional right could be. But to the extent that the constitutional right is contingent on following lawful procedures, well, then one has to look at what the lawful procedures are in any given state. And I don't view that as an expansion of the federal right. I just view that as a case-specific application of an otherwise uniform, albeit contingent, right. So in the case of uh, search and seizures, I mean, the question I sort of have for for Luke, and I'm utterly ignorant of criminal law. I don't know anything about criminal law. The question I have is, what if a cop got a warrant to search an apartment, but he went to the wrong judge? 
So you're supposed to get your warrant from the, the, you know, the intermediate judge, and instead you go to some magistrate judge who only has jurisdiction over you know, dog catchers. But that judge gives you the warrant and says, go search Billy, Billy Joe's house. You do it. It had probable cause. It specifically defines the place. It meets all the constitutional requirements, but it's an illegal warrant. Is that search still good under the Fourth Amendment? I don't know the answer to that. Maybe it is, and maybe that's, that would seem to be the natural answer given the, the Virginia case. Right, right. Right. So maybe that's the answer, but I'm not sure that has to be the answer. Uh, I do agree with his point that it would discourage states from increasing their protections and, and limiting their own powers if there were a federal consequence to that. So I absolutely agree with the sort of practical consequence problem of it. I'm just not sure that that properly is the, the basis on which we interpret what due process or something like that means. Yeah, and, and as I uh, uh, referenced in my remarks, the major problems I see are uh, dealing with accountability and uniformity. Um, but there is a breaking point for this notion that states should not be able to manipulate federal constitutional rights. I mean, at some point, you just can't disentangle the two. For instance, there has to, you know, the federal constitution uh, has been held to require probable cause for an arrest. Well, states have different elements to particular crimes. And so, you know, an individual in Washington might have uh, particular defenses available or, or there might be a, a, more, uh, uh, a more sort of liberal uh, definition of a crime uh, than the individual in Virginia. Um, therefore, uh, probable cause, you could frame it as, uh, uh, you know, benefiting one of these individuals, but at, at some point you just can't disentangle the two. Um, they're so sort of embedded in the, the fundamental constitutional right at issue. Okay, um, let's open it up to Q&A. Um, I'm going to take uh, the prerogative to, to ask uh, another question, I guess, um, of Clark, just of, just of Clark, um, and to, to prove that I actually read the, his article, uh, not just editing it. Um, he, Clark concludes that the practical effect of Heller will be fairly modest, and after going through this sweeping talk, about how this is a, a revolutionary change, how the court revived this important amendment, this important right, uh, while the practical effect is modest and purely symbolic. Explain that. <laughs> well, I think the fact of the matter is that um, this changed. Another thing that changed around the time that the scholarship on the Second Amendment changed is uh, a lot of states changed their laws, uh, gun laws. So, for example, uh, there's only a handful of states right now where they, they make it difficult, for example, to get a concealed carry permit. I think it's 40 or 43 states where as long as you don't have a, a mental health history or a criminal record uh, and you pass the test and pay the fee, they have to give you a concealed carry permit. So the reason I think that the, the, the effects of the decision are going to be fairly modest is there's not a whole lot out there that needs fixing, at least in my view, uh, when it comes to, to gun rights. Um, there are some states, California, New York, Massachusetts, it's a handful of others. They have a discretionary permitting system for issuing concealed carry permits. I think those have got to go by the wayside. You can't have a constitutional right that's contingent on the, uh, you know, the whim of a government official. So I think those are going down. Uh, Chicago has uh, a, a handgun ban that my co-counsel Alan Grew in the back is uh, currently litigating. I think that's going down. I think the Second Amendment has got to be incorporated uh, as against state and local governments. But I just don't think there are that many uh, gun laws on the books in comparison to the total number that are likely to be found to be constitutionally deficient. I think it's an incredibly important decision symbolically uh, in the sense that we don't 
we came within one justice of having an entire provision of the Bill of Rights thrown overboard, and that didn't happen. I think it's an incredibly symbolic development, uh, but I think it can be incredibly important symbolically without having uh, necessarily a sweeping practical effect. Okay. Um, when I call on you, please wait for the microphone, um, announce your affiliation, if any, and actually ask a question. My name is C. Alexander Evans. I'm with the City University of New York Graduate Center. And my question is for Professor Milligan. Um, in discussing the Moore case, you make the point that it seems unfair for the Fourth Amendment to protect Moore, uh, Moore's brother in one state, but not to protect Moore himself in another. And I, I see that point. But um, here's a counterargument. Moore chose to live in his state. He presumably had many options where he could have lived. He Perhaps he voted in his state. Um, he could have voted for officials that may have set different laws, and presumably he could have moved from his state to a different state. Does that, does that make it fair? Uh, I would say no. I mean, we're talking about a federal constitutional right here, federal right, and uh, I don't think it should turn on whether you have not uh, taken advantage of your, I guess you're going, your fundamental right to be able to travel from state to state. I don't think that would excuse um, sort of the, the arbitrariness of uh, this particular application and, and those similarly situated. Thank you. Thanks, Rich. Unaffiliated. Um, you, I believe you said you were going to talk about the recent developments in the D.C. situation with guns, but I don't think you did. I think uh, Ilya said I was going to talk about it, and I just didn't have time to squeeze it in, but I appreciate you asking the question so I get a chance to, because it's, uh, it's actually, if, if, if you have any animus towards D.C. because of what it's done to gun rights, um, today's a really good day. Uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, D.C. basically engaged in a campaign of massive resistance in the, in the wake of the Heller decision and essentially announced that it would only be modifying its gun regulations so far as necessary to possibly avoid a contempt citation for failing to conform the, the laws to, uh, to the Heller decision. This included, for example, maintaining the district's utterly absurd definition of machine gun, which defines as a machine gun any weapon that is capable of receiving a clip with more than 10 rounds, uh, which is nuts. That's not a machine gun. It's a semi automatic pistol, which most pistols these days that people have at home for self-defense are. Uh, so it was a clearly deliberate effort on the part of the district to thumb its nose at the Supreme Court and to maintain uh, the laws. It also was going to maintain the, the substance of its trigger lock provision that had been declared unconstitutional with just a couple of minor tweaks, and to maintain on the books uh, various procedures for registering firearms that were unnecessarily burdensome and rather clearly intended to discourage the exercise of the right than to serve any legitimate law enforcement enforcement purposes. As most of you probably know, this provoked uh, the, the Congress to float the idea of taking away from the district the power to regulate guns in the district. Uh, and this actually uh, uh, resulted in a surprising amount of congressional support, including a lot of Democrats. And I think probably D.C. was counting on that not happening. So uh, as of, I forget, a day or two ago, they blinked. And they have basically brought out yet new regulations. And now they are going to allow the registration of semi-automatic pistols. They are going to 
to ease up on some of the administrative registration requirements. They have, um, I believe now they've made the trigger lock requirement um, hortatory, or what was the word you used Aspiration. earlier? Aspirational. Aspirational uh, and not mandatory. Uh, and so they really did, you know, they squared off with the Congress and blinked. And I, I think that on some level they're still trying to engage in this campaign of massive resistance or they would like to, but the Congress has made it clear that that could come with a heavy price, namely uh, being, being, having the power to regulate guns taken away from them. So it's my understanding that those regulations are going to be um, – are expected to, uh, to be enacted and put on the books, and I think that's a great development. I'm just sorry that the, the D.C. had to essentially uh, do it with a stick over its head instead of involuntary compliance with a fairly unambiguous Supreme Court decision. Luke. Yeah. Uh, Clark, real quick question. Uh, you mentioned uh, some of the dicta in the Heller decision, and, and there was a lot of it. Uh, but there was no discussion at all of incorporation. I guess uh, I was wondering if you were surprised uh, by the court's decision to, uh, to, to let that issue lie. You know, let me do. Let me kick that over to Eric because he actually co-authored, if you don't mind, uh, he co-authored a brief uh, with the Institute for Justice that I was separate from because my work on this case was in my private capacity. But uh, so anyway, Eric authored a brief on that precise point, so I'd be interested to hear his thoughts. Yeah, uh, while sort of the court expressly said that uh, it wasn't reaching the incorporation question, it did have a nice long section. Uh, talking about the views of the Reconstruction Era framers of the 14th Amendment and explaining how their, their views were consistent with the prior views that this is an individual right. And, uh, in fact, the brief that I did for IJ talked about how the, the framers of the 14th Amendment understood and intended and thought that exactly what they were doing was incorporating the Second Amendment, among others, into the 14th Amendment. And there's more discussion about Second Amendment rights being wh why they're passing the 14th Amendment than almost any other right, with the possible exception of the right to petition. Um, so, so while he didn't rule on it, he certainly gave a big several-page hint that uh, the history is going to support incorporation. Uh, in addition, if you look at the current incorporation test, which looks to the sort of the long-standing, well-developed aspect of the right, its importance to, and centrality to our way of government, mm -hmm. and then you read Scalia's discussion about how this stems from old England and it's one of the most essential rights of man, uh, it's not too hard to predict how that would drive the incorporation analysis as it currently exists. Any thoughts on how Justice Thomas has uh, come down on incorporation? No. His, his influence maybe limited some of the language in the opinion? <clears throat> no, I wouldn't speculate as Justice to whether Thomas, it was him of course, or whether being it was, a famous foe of incorporation. Whether it was him or whether it was Kennedy. <laughs> um, and, you know, it, it's sort of interesting. While Thomas might have a pretty good argument uh, in terms of non-incorporation of certain rights, such as the Establishment Clause rights, which in their original understanding were meant to protect states in their ability to establish religion as against the federal government picking one, uh, the nature of this right is such that one would think it, he would more readily see it as a right against the states, given the Reconstruction Era history that specifically mentions this right. Let me add one thing. I, you know, this is a fairly esoteric discussion, but I, I think that Justice Thomas, Justice Thomas, by the way, has signaled a willingness to go back and revisit the awful, disgusting, horrendous slaughterhouse cases, which essentially wrote the Privileges or Immunities Clause out 
uh, of the 14th Amendment. It was a pure act of judicial will. It wasn't even very well done. Um, and almost every living scholar agrees that Slaughterhouse got it wrong. They disagree what the Privileges or Immunities Clause was intended to mean, but Slaughterhouse was clearly a bad decision. And I think it's possible to just consider the right to keep and bear arms and to have meaningful self-defense as a privilege or immunity of citizenship. And you don't even have to incorporate the Second Amendment. This is a freestanding natural right that is, is almost certainly one of the things that the ratifiers of the 14th Amendment understood themselves to be protecting, given the history uh, of the time and the expressed intentions of the people involved in the process. So I would love to see it not even incorporated, but just protected directly as a privilege or immunity or, privilege or immunity of citizenship. And that's, in fact, the position I.J. took in this amicus brief, and that's what much of the history says, is that this is a privilege or immunity of, natural, of national citizenship. Another thing that I think I also picked up from uh, Eric's IJ brief is that one of the first things that the post-Reconstruction Southern governments did was to disarm free blacks. Let me say, I'm Howard Cooley from Patrick Henry. I guess it was a coincidence that I, I happened to raise my hand uh, after your last comment about disarming free blacks. So that was a, that's a joke. <laughs> Everybody can laugh. Take a deep breath. Uh, <laughs> l- let me just make a comment, and then I, I do have a question. And I, I don't think what the D.C. government is doing is massive resistance. Uh, I grew up in the era of massive resistance. Uh, my father fought uh, segregation in the South. Uh, the massive resistance uh, movement was designed to forestall not just the government, the ruling of the Supreme Court, but to maintain uh, an oppressive apartheid style of life, whereas what the D.C. government is doing is trying to preserve life uh, as best they can in light of what is clearly and has been historically uh, a pandemic uh, in the African-American community, or the Hispanic community, but especially in the African-American community, way up in the 80s, higher in the, 90, uh, high in the 90s, and then it's, it has decreased. But we have a very, very, very serious homicide uh, problem. And so the question is, uh, isn't it re- do you, would you agree, what's the panel's view on this? Would you agree that it's reasonable to regard people who are victimized by homicide? Let's say you lived in Anacostia or in areas of Detroit or other areas and you had family members who were killed or shot. I taught a class previously on homicide, by the way, uh, People had a different view when we went to Anacostia and talked to victims or went to prisons. One thing to read about it theoretically. But the, the question is, would you, is it reasonable now to regard these people who are victimized by, uh, by gun violence as the new insular minority, like people who are in the drug wars? You know, every time you see in Washington, D.C., someone is, or some, some city, some young girl is, is shot in her front yard by, uh, you know, a bullet. So, so with respect to gun laws, isn't it reasonable now to try to maintain, notwithstanding the Second Amendment, that the court should intervene to try to do something to to reduce the, the this pandemic or to control it? That's my question. Yeah, let me start by saying I, I appreciate both the uh, the comment, the question, and the spirit in which it was offered. Um, I uh, I agree that there's a significant difference. I you know perhaps I was exaggerating a bit. Um, 
and I know there was a difference, significant differences between D.C.'s reaction to Heller and, and massive resistance. But, you know, for those of us who consider the Second Amendment to be a right on par with the other rights of the Bill of Rights, free speech, religion, and so forth, I think that it is fair to characterize the district's reaction to Heller as disrespectful of that right, at least. Uh, so I start by saying that. Second, the, um, although the empirical uh, data did not get much attention in the opinions, there was a number of briefs addressing it. And I think that it is virtually inarguable uh, that all of the empirical research, at least all of the credible empirical research that has been done, has shown that the, the handgun ban in D.C. achieved nothing. Uh, and I can just give you a few examples. So, for example, the homicide rate in D.C. skyrocketed after 1976, and not just because the, the drug war came and, and, and murder rates skyrocketed everywhere. In fact, D.C.'s murder rate went up in proportion to other similarly situated urban areas. Uh, and so there was a wealth of evidence to not just suggest but I think prove that the handgun ban did nothing. So what you have is a significant imposition on a very important constitutional right in the service of an end that it's not even promoting. It's doing nothing. Uh, and I think that is, you know, a significant issue. If you, if you actually look at the plaintiffs that, that, that we represented in this case, uh, one of them, Shelley Parker, for example, literally had a drug dealer try to kick his way into her house one night yelling, bitch, I'll kill you. I live in this neighborhood, too, because she had tried to clean up the neighborhood. Well, what's she supposed to do if that guy gets in? Call 911? D.C. has a, like an 8 to 10 minute response time after they dispatch somebody to your apartment. Well, whatever that guy was going to do in there is going to be over in 30 seconds to a minute. She doesn't have 10 minutes to wait for the police to show up. So that's why she has that right, because the state is not omnipresent. It can't protect us at all times. And my heart goes out, absolutely, to the people whose children have been victims of gun violence. Um, but I don't think the way to solve that problem is by imposing on the rights that other people have. And I'll just close by saying this. We don't have time to get into it right now, but there was some extraordinary scholarship that was done and that is reflected in some of the amicus briefs that, in fact, if you look through history, most gun regulations have as their origin an attempt to disenfranchise and disarm people of limited political power. Blacks during Jim Crow, immigrants back in the early 1900s, um, and most recently back in the 60s and 70s, Black Panthers and others. You can disagree with that scholarship, but it's out there, and I don't think it's been very well refuted. try a different approach on Heller. I mean, I think whether people like the individual rights approach on the Second Amendment or dislike it, I think both sides can agree that handgun use ownership is widespread in the district and in jurisdictions almost regardless of whether, of what the gun laws are. So my question is, given the, the supreme ease of getting handguns regardless of legislation, why is it that crucial to insist that on the individual right to do so when the legislation has had um, has been extremely easy to avoid and gun ownership is, if not universal, at least extremely common, even in jurisdictions that have such legislation? Um, I, let me just jump in with one quick observation. I think this conflates legal gun ownership with illegal gun ownership, and I think that's a mistake. And it's a, it's, it's a mistake that's a little misleading because law-abiding citizens don't own handguns. That's the problem. So you're right. There's tons of guns and there's tons of gun violence, and it has nothing to do with the Second Amendment right at all. It has to do with people willing to violate the law and then, of course, willing to shoot up neighborhoods and shoot up kids and shoot up anyone who gets in their way. Uh, 
what the Second Amendment protects is not those folks. Those folks would not get a gun under the post-Heller regime because they'll be criminals, they'll be crazy. Uh, there'll be any number of reasons why we would still make it illegal for them to have guns. They may get the gun anyway, but they won't get it lawfully. The only people who gain guns under Heller are folks who are most likely to use it to protect themselves against the very people who are shooting up the neighborhoods. So, so I think it's uh, a mistake to say there are guns everywhere when, in fact, right now in D.C., there are only illegal guns held by people willing to violate the law. Happy to go to the back if I see arms up there. Yeah, Chao Chen, Bethesda, Maryland. If I'm heard correct, that uh, there are only 44 states have a state law for uh, Second Amendment. and if this is right, then that uh, 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 some citizens in certain states uh, don't have a constitutional right. And second, I have a more basic question. Uh, how the amendments are formed and then how to enforce the amendment? Thank you. On the question of the states, I think that's just a factual thing that came up. I think what uh, Clark mentioned, that 44 states have in their state constitution uh, an equivalent right to bear arms, but you can clarify further. Yeah, that's right. I mean, not every state has a provision that is parallel to every provision of the Bill of Rights. So there are some states that don't have an analog to the Second Amendment. But the point is, we don't know yet whether the federal Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms will be applied against state and local governments. Based on the discussion that we've had here today and what you see out in scholarship and blogosphere, most people seem to expect that that will happen when the issue gets presented to the Supreme Court. So that ruling will have uniform application throughout the country if and when it comes, and that will establish the baseline right to a Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms the people in those 44 states that do have state analogs might get even more protection um, from their state Supreme Courts interpreting their state constitutions, but at least the Supreme Court will hopefully establish a national baseline if and when it incorporates the Second Amendment against the states. I'm Andrew Olson from the Federalist Society, um, and this is for Mr. Milligan. Without revisiting the question of whose responsibility it is to determine the extent of protection or lack thereof of searches incident to arrest under the Fourth Amendment, what does it mean to claim that Moore's arrest was constitutional, given that the Constitution, by failing to define crimes, doesn't actually authorize arrests? Um, could, you, could you reframe that, that question? <laughs> In what way does the Constitution authorize Moore's arrest if there was no crime which the Constitution can basically authorize an arrest for? Well, maybe I'm missing the, maybe I'm missing the point. It seems to be kind of a, semantic, a, a sort of a semantic debate. The Constitution is silent on crime and, and you know, how you deal with crime and what arrests are. So, um, Any crimes for which Mr. Moore may have been arrested right. would have been crimes defined under state law. State law did not define any crimes for which he could be arrested. So how does the Constitution go beyond that and authorize an arrest? Um, this, uh, the question, I mean, you know, the, the Fourth Amendment has been incorporated to the states. The states uh, have to uh, uh, follow the warrant requirement. They have to work within the CATS framework. And when a state 
uh, agent arrests a, a, a citizen of the state, even for state law, and even if it's going to proceed in a state forum, you have to comply with Fourth Amendment rights as those are incorporated to the state. So I, I guess authorization uh, would be uh, implicit in a post-incorporation uh, federalist uh, paradigm. Yeah, fall, yeah. If, if I can actually rephrase, I think what he might be getting at is – or, or an answer to what he might be getting at is um, that the what, what Moore said was that the search um, was constitutional, didn't violate the Fourth Amendment, and therefore doesn't warrant uh, application of the exclusionary rule. But I, I think the court was silent as to whether the the arrest was was constitutional. Isn't that right? Oh, I, okay. Is that the question? Yeah, yeah. The arrest was clearly constitutional because there was probable cause that he had committed the offense of driving on a suspended license. But that wasn't an arrestable offense in Virginia. Are you telling me that the Constitution authorizes arrests even against state law uh, if crimes have probably been committed? Yes, that's Atwater, and that's the United States versus Wren decision, where even where officers obey local regulations, they are able, uh, under the Fourth Amendment. Now, the Fourth Amendment doesn't necessarily mean that if it's a state arrest, let's say it's a state arrest, it's in a state forum, and it's a state law, uh, they are, then the evidence would be excluded pursuant to state law, <coughs> pursuant to the state constitution. But we're talking about a, a, uh, a Fourth Amendment claim. And in this situation, Virginia had, had uh, basically tracked its search and seizure constitutional rights or constitutional protections with the federal government. So Virginia High Court was interpreting the Fourth Amendment. So, so if they could break, certainly the, the Virginia Virginia could enact its own or interpret uh, its own analog Fourth Amendment any way it wants. But in this case, it was actually interpreting the Fourth Amendment. So, so here's the question: Is an arrest for a non-existent crime constitutional? Is that a constitutional seizure? So, if the crime doesn't exist at all, if it wasn't illegal mm-hmm. to drive without a, a license, but they arrested you for driving without a license, would that be a constitutional seizure? Uh, that would be an unconstitutional seizure. Precisely because, because Virginia no, chose not to make not it a crime. criminalize that offense. So the fact that they chose to make it only a violation and not a arrestable crime, why is that different? Um, the court's focus here is that there was an actual arrest. Well, but why? If it but had if been it, a mere citation, we got the Knowles versus Iowa. But, but it's not an arrestable crime. So, so if it had not been a crime at all and they arrested you for it, there was a real arrest. Right. But it wasn't for a crime, hence they didn't have authority to arrest you. Here... There was a, a minor crime, a violation, but it wasn't an arrestable crime, yet they arrested you for it. I'm not sure how that's different than the absence of a crime at all. Um, I mean, the court's got to draw a breaking point, and it's, at some point it recognizes the breaking point is when an officer – when it's actually not an offense. I mean, the Constitution – there's basically a, tr- a, a, a trinity of cases that uh, severely undermine uh, the rights of uh, particularly uh, citizens in cars – the first is Atwater, where you can be arrested for any offense, no matter how minor, under the Fourth Amendment. Uh, the other is Wren, which allows pretextual searches. You actually can want to search the car, but you don't have probable cause yet, so you actually have to arrest the person for this very minor violation. And the last is the Belton line of cases, which allows an automatic search of the interior of the car based on any arrest. So you've got these three cases. So basically the Fourth Amendment is absent. It's absent in these situations. And you do have the Virginia state constitution. You do have uh, Virginia legislative laws also in the evidentiary context. Now, you also have Congress. Congress can respond and say, let's say this had proceeded for whatever reason in federal court. Congress could come out and say, we're going to pass, we're going to enact uh, a particular evidentiary rule. 
We're going to sort of supplement the Constitution with an exclusionary evidentiary rule, not interpreting the Constitution, but a, a simple rule of evidence. So there are some checks, but I guess the, the, the question is spot on. The federal Constitution is, uh, is, is dormant in these types of uh, stops. The, the logical follow-up is what is Moore's remedy and what is the remedy for all Virginians? You know, when I drive over the bridge, you know, sometime I, I live in D.C., so I have other issues to deal with. But when I drive over the bridge to go to Virginia um, and, you know, the cops all of a sudden, aha, we can just arrest everybody and just search everybody. As long, you know, we, we will arrest everybody who's speeding is the new policy. You know, what, what's the remedy to stop that sort of thing? Well, you've got administrative, I mean, this is Virginia police, uh, local police. Uh, it's not, yeah, it's not a federal DC. No, it's a, yeah, state. It's local police. I mean, you've got you've got it's the classic sort of conservative attack on the on, on the Fourth Amendment. You have alternative remedies, uh, you know, whether you believe they exist or not. I mean, 1983 qualified immunity severely eats into civil liability, but it exists, and that's sort of the Hudson versus Michigan case. I mean, the whole thing turns on these alternative remedies, and we're going to see in future cases. Uh, particularly the court's going to address the good faith exception to the exclusionary rule, uh, how robust the court actually sees these alternative remedies. One, again, is administrative sanctions. The cop can be punished. Uh, you've got civil liability. Um, and uh, and at the, you know, sort of going back to your earlier point, you've got some fundamental rights. You can actually associate and you can speak and you can vote. Those would be your checks on, uh, on that particular stop. Thank you. And with that, we'll wrap up this panel. Please be back here in an hour. There's lunch upstairs in the atrium. Thank you.